last week, just prior to our dismissal, we had uh, broken into some groups and I gave you each a question. And um, we only had an opportunity for, I think, was it one group or two groups to share? Did anybody share? I, th I thought one or two groups did. Yeah. So, um, I know Sam was sitting here. I think you were in it. Okay, so uh, that was the psychological impact of artificial insemination by donor on the spouse, on the husband. And then, Mark, you had a group, you guys were talking about um, a slight increase of incest. You guys didn't share, and neither did you guys, right? Okay, so then the lesbian couples, I had written down, I think Mark Popma and maybe Glenn Granger. You had that one? Yeah. And you didn't share yet, right? So what group did share? There was Jill. You did share yours? Must not have been very memorable. <laughs> Need some new material. Okay. Okay, and then the um, there was a sec the secretive sense. I think like Jill, Michelle were in on that one. And then there was one about the intrinsic breach of marriage. It was a table of ladies at the back, Cindy and Dela, and I don't see them here tonight. So let's start with this group. What remains in it? Are you the only one that was in it? <laughs> Michelle, Dennis. Okay. Okay. So let's just have this group share. So the question is, we're talking about artificial insemination by donor. And one would think that in some way there's a possibility of psychological impact upon the husband if he wasn't able to quote-unquote contribute to the biology of the child. So the question was... Um, is the psychosocial reality of a third par party being present in the covenant dangerous, or is it no different than a person adopting a spouse's child from a previous marriage? So that was kind of the, the gist of it. So would you guys like to just comment on what you thought about that question, what your findings were? Okay. Can you guys hear him in the back? Okay, good. Okay. Um, because there is going to be the sense of a third party in the marriage, even though it's, it's just the donor and, and the child is just it's going to be just like a, a son or a daughter. Yeah. But there could be um, a psychological impact 
that if both of them agree, uh, if they're all right with it, um, I guess not. Okay. But then that's the problem. I want to be yeah. honest with each other. If it's going to be okay for the father uh, and the mother at the long run. Okay. So... What I'm hearing then is it's really about conversation, the conversation, both parties feeling comfortable with it. Any other thoughts in brief from the rest of the class on this issue? Okay, what about the child? Okay. Okay. Yeah, that was um, like a question that uh, I think, and I don't know exactly where you went with it, but I think the group that Michelle and Jill were in, they were sort of wrestling with that one maybe a little bit. So maybe I'll just reserve comments for, for the two of you for them to comment. But it's a good question. Any other? Nancy, do you have a comment? Now, would you see that as being any different for just an adopted child? No. Okay. No. It's, it's the same. So you wouldn't see it as any different if um, a woman was biologically the, child, the child's mother, but the father wasn't? Because that's really what we're talking about, right? We're talking about, we're not talking about really an adoption. It's kind of a different category. Uh, we're not talking about a surrogate mother. That's kind of a different category. We're talking about a couple. Let's say the male is infertile, so they uh, utilize donor sperm. So you have, a, in essence, a biological mother, but your father is not your biological father. Um, any other comments on that? Yeah. Yeah, one is, one isn't. Yeah. So it's no the reason that for me and my soul they have to follow our one child. In instead of if it's adopted, this is a very big difference. So so just to be clear, you are you saying they should tell the child if it's artificial insemination? If it was my kid if it was my kid yeah. and my kid is like in vitro, yeah. For sure I going to I don't tell him. You wouldn't. Okay. But if it was adopted, but different parents, like okay. mother and father, Okay. And again, that's that's more of a question for Jill and Michelle's group. Um, we're wanting to maybe focus more on the psychological impact on 
the, the dynamics of the marriage. See, I, I think that there's, I mean, there's so many variables, right? I mean, per, personalities are all over the map. Um, I, I would suggest that the reason why most people would go this route is because the woman wants to go through the process of gestation and childbirth rather than just adopting. Okay. Um, the witch? Oh, like a, even a relative, a male relative? Yeah, well, like the Leverite, back to the Leverite one. Um, I mean, the Leverite situation, the dad's dead. So it's a little different situation. So the Leverite laws, the kinsman redeemer steps up, has sexual intercourse with this woman, who becomes his wife, by the way. It's Leverite marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, this, these, are not, these are not case studies we find in the Bible because of the advancement of technology. Um, so really, you're, it boils down to more of a wisdom issue. And um, I would suggest... Right. Yeah. It was important that they had an heir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they didn't do it. So they sort of, I did. I just don't know. Yeah. And a concubine, by the way, is, is like an, an indentured servant. I mean, we're not talking about your neighbor. We're talking about someone for whom you are responsible. You know, I, I think in our, in our situation, um, I'm just speaking as a pastor slash guy who's done a lot of counseling over the years. I don't do as much counseling anymore, but I've done my fair share. I would say that would be really dangerous to use semen from someone you know or someone that's related. You, you never know 5, 10, 15, 20 years, 30 years down the road how that's going to all play itself out. So, I mean, for those of you that are guys here that have brothers, can you imagine knowing that your nephews are actually your biological children? You know, you're at family functions and, you know, there's there's all sorts of strange relational social dynamics that could take place there. Um, I also wouldn't, because I, I have friends that have done this, I also would not shun or speak ill of or suggest that there's necessary, that there's, um, to, to my knowledge, sin involved in the utilization of donor sperm. I just personally would never do it. I would, uh, I, I just think adoption has, adoption is more historical uh, you know, we have millennia of experience in the issue of adoption, area of adoption. Both parties are sort of on equal footing in terms of, uh, you know, you're both known to be non-biological. You can't sort of play games with each other. Even if there was a divorce, you're always actually my biological child, not yours. You can't play those kind of games. Um, you know, in a spirit of immaturity, you couldn't sort of uh, play with the child's mind by letting them know, well, your dad actually isn't your real dad, I'm, I'm your real mom. I, 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 th I think that, I mean, it, it clearly it works for some people, um, but I think there's a lot of dangers involved. And really, 
in some senses, this is a question of risk management. Um, and you sort of are weighing the potential pluses and potential minuses. And really, the only plus is, uh, you know, and some of, some of the ladies in this room might, might not like this language, but is the sentimental knowledge that you bore the child. Um, and keep in mind, in pursuing that sentimental knowledge, which obviously there would be some great value in, your husband doesn't have that same opportunity. So th those would be concerns that I would raise if someone was sitting there asking me, can we do this? I wouldn't say no, you know, you're out of the church. But I, I, th I, would, I would recommend against it. And to whoever made the point last week, um, you know, adoption is a really good option for Christian people. And this is a great opportunity to, um, you know, take children that have been abandoned or discarded or whose parents have died or whatnot and, um, you know, raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So I'll uh, just one, someone else, Jen. Good, good, thank you. Spoken from a mom who has experience in adoption. Very good. Yep, Josie? Yeah, my friends have, have two children through that method, using the same donor father. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, Mark's group, yours is, um, you know, sort of the it's a little different kinds of kind of a question. It's it's basically well, in the slight event that there might be future incestuous relationships between two adults who may uh, have been conceived unknowingly by the same father, is that worth the risk? So what did your group sort of discuss along those lines? 
Mm-hmm. And the, the risk in my mind, at least from my opinion, is so small that that would probably be a non-issue. Okay, okay. Um, but I guess the, the reasoning why you'd want to do it that was just brought up kind of makes me think, what's the purpose in the first place? Like, why, why would we want to go to these lengths and not... Because it is the Lord that opens and closes the womb. They knew that in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So it attributed barrenness to something the Lord is either permitting or not permitting. Okay. So in a sense, if he's doing this, it's for a reason, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can't play that God's position. Okay. But, um, you know, that's what, we, that's what I thought in my mind. I'm not sure for any of you. Who had a, other ideas as well? Okay. Yeah, I think that was pretty much my spin on it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been commissioned to, you know, take care of the widows and the orphans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that were very, very long-established communities. Yeah. And um, that can be really disturbing when you go into these communities and see, because um, they they're relatively um, corporate entities yeah. that were gated communities. Yeah. I mean, nobody came in with a, a window. And so mm-hmm. it, it kind of got disturbing when you, yeah. when you saw some of the kids running around and some of the, the, um, the uh, you know, effects of incest. Yeah. Joyce? I have personal experience. It was the first year I was teaching. It was in the little town of Gormley where oh yeah. your father was from. And uh, I had grades one to four. And most of the children were Mennonites. Oh, yeah. And I couldn't keep them straight. They all had blonde hair, blue eyes, and big fat cheeks. <laughs> Susie's brother married his cousin and didn't know it until he was engaged. His mom never bothered telling him. They had so many dozens and dozens and dozens of cousins. It wasn't even the, it wasn't, no, second cousin. I mean, half of the Middle East is first cousins. But it kind of freaked them out a little bit because they didn't know that. You know, it wasn't sort of part of the deal when you said, will you marry me? You sort of find that a little bit later. But here's, here's the thing. Um, maybe, so my take on it would be this really is a question about um, not so much about whether we would be in favor of artificial insemination by donor or not, but really it's a question more of the legalities and the policies and regulations around it. This wouldn't be an issue if they just enforced the law and said, one donor produces one child, that's it. You're off the list. You're out of the book. You know, you're out of the, the, the yearbook, so to speak. You can't be chosen anymore. Now, this is how there are some states, from what I understand, that limit a, a, a donor father from um, only fathering one to two children. But as I mentioned to you, uh, there was one case uh, in New York City where they used the same guy 150 times. Must have been a really healthy guy with some good genes. And I think there was a a number that maybe even exceeded that at one point in England. Well, New York City's huge, but think about then the next generation down. So 150 people, let's say they have two kids each, now you have 300 that are 
what first cousins or whatnot. So, or whatever it would be. So those are you know things to take into consideration. And if they're going to permit this, they should probably have some clear-cut laws that donor sperm from a particular person should only be used once. Okay, so we I guess we we did address the uh, lesbian couples using the service. Um, okay, Jill and Michelle's group. I can't remember who else was in it. Okay. I just jotted one or two names down so I could reference you next week. So what what would you make of the secret of sense? Susan Rubin, born in, by artificial insemination by donor 1950, asked why she was only worth a $25 vial of sperm and why there was what she calls, this is her language, a secretive sense uh, in the fam among her family relationships. The question is, is a failure to tell a child deceptive? Natural curiosity, as uh, Bob mentioned, leads people to, to want to know who their biological parents are. So what, what did you guys... Okay, let, let's make this really personal then, by way of a poll. Whether you, I mean, there may be some people in this room that don't know who their biological mother or father are. I, I, don't, I don't know. We don't need to know that. But would you like to know, all things being equal, would you like to know, slash, do you feel you sort of have some sort of an intrinsic right to know who your biological mother and father would be? if that information was available to you. I want you to put up your hand if you would say, yeah, I, that would be something I feel I sort of deserve to know. Again, whether you know or not. Okay. How many of you would say, no, I don't think I need, need to know that slash have the right to know that? And several abstainers, it looks like. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, personally, I think secrecy is a bad option among families, period. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I don't want to, and again, I'm not even thinking of any situation right now, but uh, I, I just think it's always a good idea to tell, tell your family what needs to be said. You just don't keep secrets on any level. What's the point? Even if, like, you screwed up in the past, you did something bad, you had your child out of wedlock, just tell them. You know, I know people, they're, you know, they're, they're teenagers and all of a sudden they're, they're realizing, okay, mom and dad are celebrating their 15th anniversary, but I'm 16, you know, that, and it's just never, like, what, what's the benefit of that? At some point, someone's going to do the math and figure it out. And I would say, I would say, with few exceptions, 
exceptions being maybe a disabled child, a mentally disabled child, you tell your children way before they're an 18-year-old adult. I mean, you're, you're very curious about these things when you're a lot younger than that. Uh, I'll tell you a, a personal thing. I, um, and some of you couldn't care less about this kind of stuff, but for whatever reason, I've always been fascinated by, by genealogical studies. And so when I was 25, I published a book. It's probably 200 pages long. It's in several libraries about my family lineage and Susie's family lineage through Elgin County and um, Kent counties and Middlesex counties. And I spent several years re from the age of 17 to 25, 26, researching that. And uh, just interested in, you know, your family of origin, where you came from, this. If I had found out after all of that that this whole strand wasn't my bi, I would have, I would have killed somebody, I think. You know? <laughs> um, now, for others, they, they couldn't care less about that. Some of you don't know who your, what your grandparents' names are. You don't care. It's not relevant to you. I have an interest in that. And if I just knew that right up front, you know, I don't know who your dad is. Okay, fine, I'm not going to do the work. But if I do all this work and trace the rocks and the hatches back hundreds of years and then find out that it's not even relevant to my family history, <laughs> that would be a major issue for me. <laughs> so so um, any other comments or questions? Uh, Susan. Yeah. Sure. And that's natural. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Okay. Um, okay, so I think the, I don't think there's any representatives for the last group there. I don't think. Oh, were you in the back there, Kathy? Oh, okay, great. So. <laughs> but now you can't remember what your group talked about, right? <laughs> Yeah. So, is this an intrinsic, intrinsic breach of marriage? I don't know if it's intrinsic breach, but I think it, like, like you know, like 100% on board. Okay. 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 And and not the natural approach. Yeah. We talked we talked about that last week. That. Um, there have been situations where a woman wants to conceive and the husband agrees, well, we don't want to make it s too test tube-like, so she actually just goes and has intercourse with the guy. And, and it's called natural artificial insemination by donor. That's the fancy title for it. There's a whole lot of problems attached to that. <laughs> right? So, Okay, well, these are some things for you to think about. And... Um, <coughs> As I mentioned, Jill asked a question last week we sort of touched on. I don't think the Leverite uh, situation is really analogous. I mean, there's definitely uh, enough differences that I don't think that necessarily factors into this. Um, the Leverite laws really relate more to family uh, legacy. That would be like a secular way of looking at it. Sorry, the the girl and her husband. But who was the father? Uh, her husband. I'll say so. It's like a married couple yeah. gave their daughter, 
their child to because they can have a child? Yeah, I would say. Yeah, because you're adopting, not even to really. Again, maybe that goes back to Jen's comments. It's like, well, we just really want a kid. Okay, well, I get it, but some people really want to be married, but they're still single. Some people really want to be the prime minister, <laughs> but they're not. Like we don't get everything we want, folks. And. At some point, someone will put it in the human rights charter that you, you, know, you deserve a $20 hour a job or some, something like that. I mean, our understanding of human rights, I think, is largely ridiculous. We put anything, we, we just keep adding to the list of what a human right is. Um, but we have this notion that if someone else has it, oh, we should have it, or if it makes me feel bad because I don't have this, then I should get, get it too. And I'm, I'm not trying to minimize the, the pain and agony of one situation over another. I, I mean, I, I obviously understand that there's a gradation of things that bring pain into people's lives, but the inability to have children is not the only pain that people experience in life. There's people that have 15 children and live in a co countries that aren't democratic, for instance, and would love to live in a democratic country. And that affects them every single day. And there's pain attached to that. So I think we have to be careful while we sympathize with anybody who's going through any pain in life. Uh, this, this biblical notion of persevering and patience and waiting upon the Lord and that there, be, there is a redemptive, uh, there's redemptive value attached to not always having what you want on, on some of the deepest, profoundest levels are, I mean, these are in a sense beautiful biblical truths. And there is many situations in the Bible where the barren wo woman suddenly con conceives. And there's many situations where, you know, the, the barren woman, especially in some of the Psalms or songs of the Bible, is able to find um, the ability to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of her barrenness, right? So, well, we, we're going to move into marriage ethics now, but I mean, in some ways, we're sort of already moving down that path. So does everybody have a handout? Or does anybody need a handout? They're back, the back table there beside Jordan. So marriage ethics. You might say, well, marriage is more like of a, I mean, is that really an ethical question? Um, well, I mean, whether we should get married or not is not an ethical question per se. But here's some, here are some questions that are ethical in nature that relate to marriage. And there are several others that we could talk about. But... Let me throw out a few, and these are going to be, I want to spend quite a bit of time discussing this, and then I have pages and pages and pages of stuff for us to look at this week and next, and then we will come back to um, this discussion. Let me just check something here. Let me get my schedule right. Is Harvest you next week, Sue? Uh -huh. It's next week, isn't it? So next week's what? 20th? Okay. Okay, so we will talk about it next week. The following week, there's no class because we're up Oakville. 
Here are some questions that relate to marriage. And I've just shortened them here, but number one, are prenuptial agreements ethical in order to preserve a person from potentially unnecessary financial demise? You all know what a prenup is? So, uh, you know, maybe you've been married before, and let's just paint the scenario. The young Christian man marries a young Christian woman. Um, things are great. They grow together. There's a financial, maybe not a fortune, but there's there's financial fortune amassed, and all of a sudden one or two, one party goes off the rails and just turns into a complete pagan. And the other person's like, you know, I, I made all the right steps here, and this person is just off the track. So round two, it's like, you know, I mean, I'm going into it optimistically, but I was burned the first time, so I want a prenup. So the question is, is that wise slash right? Question number two is, is now this is, this is just the short version, so here the full question. Is divorce ethically permissible slash necessary in any case other than adultery or abandonment? Other than adultery or abandonment. So let's say um, physical abuse. Okay. It's not in the divorce text of the Bible, but physical abuse, let's say. Number three, are divorced people eligible for church leadership? And this might be more of a, maybe this would be less of a yes or no, but you know we could create several different scenarios. Number four, this is, I think, one of the most important questions that the church has failed to address. Okay, so let's say you have a marriage. The um, new couple comes to the church. They love the Lord. They uh, want to serve, but they're married because they both left their previous spouses in an adulterous relationship with one another went to the justice of peace, got a marriage license, do we recognize it? So should marriages that start off as adulterous relationships be recognized? Okay. Five, keep in mind here as well that I don't know of really any Christians that would recognize the legitimacy of the engagement, but all of a sudden we change our tune when they have an Ontario marriage license. Is that, is that biblical? Five, uh, a couple moves, uh, th three people move to Canada from an African country that allows for polygamy. Man's married to two women. They become Christians. They're living in our country. They want to join our church. They're Christians. They're faithful. He's faithful to his two wives. Okay. Uh, we'll throw another, they're sisters. No. Uh, one's name's Leah, you know, <laughs> uh, she's the homelier one, um, biblical, biblical account. How would you like to be Leah? It's like, you're the whole, you're like recorded in scripture eternal as the homely sister, right? So do, what do we what do we do? This could happen. Do we say, you know, you got to divorce one of them? What do we do? Uh, number six, are arranged marriages valid? 
are they true marriages? So let's say, again, we have a couple comes over from India and, you know, she was 14 or 15 and she was forced to marry some guy and, you know, they're, they're here now and they're Christians and he wants to stay married to her and she's like, I, I, never, I never chose this guy. He was chosen for me. I want to leave him, you know. So what do you do? Seventh question, very, very, very important. Especially in light of that. This is really the question behind the gay marriage issue, which Christians, strangely, are not asking, which just blows my mind. Do governments belong in the marriage business? Now, by the way, your answer to this question is going to spill over into whether you even care about the government issuing licenses to gay couples or not, because if you answer this question no, they could give all the paperwork they want, and you would have no reason to even recognize the validity of those relationships. But if you think the government is in the marriage business, then you should fight nail and tooth against it. Okay? Historically, the church was in the marriage business. If you're doing genealogical research and you want to know where your ancestors, uh, the marriage dates of your ancestors from England, let's say, you, there's no government records. There's no such thing. You go to the parish. The parish kept the registry. The church was in the marriage business. There was no, there was no such thing as a... Uh, a marriage license from the government. That's a modern phenomenon, but it's not so modern that any of us grew up before that happened. I mean, it's just, we've been used so used to that that we have the notion that when the Ontario marriage license or bans form is signed, that's a legitimate marriage. And I'm just wondering if that is um, a good, good notion or not. So I want to hear from you on some of these. You can pick any one of them and make some comments. Josie. This is my other my other wife's calling. Mm-hmm. Every human being and any other kind of 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I agree that uh, it's definitely demonic in origin and fleshly in origin. Um, some Christians are more worked up about who's going to be the next prime minister than they are about uh, the demise of marriage and family relationships. But I can tell you that being that marriage is the building blocks of all social order, you mess with that one. It doesn't matter who's governing the country or not governing the country. Uh, you are going to have disaster um, in your country, your culture, whatever you might your clan, your city. So the, these are important. And yes, we do. I appreciate you mentioning that. This is this is spiritual, a spiritual issue. But we, we are living in broken times and we are redemptive agents. And our job is to try to bring redemption into the mess. And the question is, as we are confronted with these issues, how do we best bring redemption into the messy relationships that we are confronted with as Christians and as churches and in our families? And by the way, to be consistent, let me just say this, a little sermon point. Sometimes the biggest challenges that churches and pastors like me have in putting into practice or enforcing uh, marital ethics is the fact that a lot of the families in our churches won't do it themselves. They'll let their kids marry whoever, and I got to deal with it 20 years later when the marriage is on the rocks. They, um, They don't deal with their own baggage, and so they take up the time of our staff constantly coming for counseling on various issues. Um, they don't teach their children the things of the Lord. And then again, that's why we have a lot of graduates right now from Christian colleges and seminaries with counseling degrees who are overwhelmed. Right Now, I understand that there's many, many times in life when a third, fourth, fifth party or a church has to come, step in and help us along. It's Galatians 6. You know, we, we, we help the stumbling brother. I get that. But uh, if the, the point I want to make is that if, if the Christian couples in our church and the families in our church and the parents in our, our church would commit themselves to actually following the word of God, uh, you're greatly helping the church as a whole, society as a whole. You're alleviating the burdens placed upon future pastors and leaders and deacons and deaconesses and counselors and whatnot in the church. But sometimes you almost feel like you're in a wrestling match between the individual ethics of the people in our church and the corporate ethics. And strangely, you have people that will champion, raise the flag high, the corporate ethics of a church. Yeah, I'm glad you guys stand for marriage and you're pro-family and you're pro... But they're not doing it themselves. It's very strange. Um, It's like there's a different ethic in the home than there is when they come together at the church. So... Let's hear some specifics to these questions. What, which one intrigues you? Pick one that intrigues you, and let's have some comments on it. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Um, in some situations, uh, there, there would be ch- churches and Christians, of course, that would like. Let's let's take the third question. So, can they lead in the church? There are some churches, okay, we'll just say churches, because I don't want to necessarily suggest that it's a biblical notion, but there are some churches that have absolutely no problem with, with, if if I was divorced, I can continue to pastor. 
Others would say, well, even if he has a legitimate reason to divorce, as soon as he remarries, he's disqualified. Others would say, if by definition you're legitimately divorced, then you're legitimately able to remarry. Uh, so that's the third question. The, 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 the second question is, most Christians, not all, but most Christians in churches like ours would say, okay, obviously divorce is never a good thing. Somebody always messes up in order for one to happen. But there's two situations within which divorce is permissible. If the spouse has an adulterous relationship, the covenant's broke. Divorce is permissible. Secondly, based on 1 Corinthians 7, you're abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. So you become a Christian, your unbelieving spouse says, I'm out of here. So divorce would be legitimate, many would believe. But sometimes people, there are some Christians then that want to just lock it down. Those are the only two, only two situations because they're sort of case studied out, so to speak, in the Bible. Other Christians would say, well, there's actually broader ethical considerations that would maybe also permit a divorce. And they're not, there's no specific verse where this, whereby this is applied to marriage, but for instance, if a husband's beating the tar out of his wife, like where is, where is your text for that one? You won't find it. You know, if the husband kicks his wife in the head three times, she can therefore divorce him. It's not, it's not in the Bible. So someone comes to you and says, my husband, or we've even had situations in distant years past, the wife was beating up the husband. Uh, is there legitimate grounds for divorce? See? Okay. So you would say yes. See. Yes, I see, or yes, see. Okay. So that's a double yes. Okay. So does that help, Jill? What would, what would be your take on that then? Just your initial reaction. Okay. Any opportunity, any ministry opportunity is okay. So no divorce tax, but kind of that general notion of God's... Okay. okay. I was thinking of uh, the last two questions um, about validity and do the governments belong. And without getting sidetracked, I was thinking the only question it really begs is, what is marriage? Did you say you divorce <laughs> marriage? What does that mean? But uh, let me, without getting into... No, that's kind of an important question. Maybe that should be up there. <laughs> what is marriage? <laughs> Define it. Yeah. Okay, good. I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. What if we have uh, one of our elders is in Utah right now? What if he converts a uh, Mormon family? They want to go to a local Baptist church. Hey. 
I wouldn't be surprised if a few churches in Utah that have had, had to wrestle with this issue. <laughs> Okay, forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is ground zero to Christianity. But is does forgiveness really have anything to do with consequences or the legitimacy of a relationship? So, I mean, this, this brings up the question uh, number four. So if I, I divorce my wife... I run off with some woman, and I'm living with her. I'm shacked up, and you guys are all after me. You're sinning. You're doing wrong. You're confronting me. You're, you know, I'm under church discipline and everything else. And you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Wrong. And suddenly you get a marriage invitation in the mail. Like, are you are you kind of like the 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 plaintiff who's um, uh, what's the what's the word when like um, there's a, li- a limited period of time where you can file a, a statute of limitations. Like, is, is that like a statute of limitations issue? Like, as soon as I say I do, I have my interior marriage license, you guys can't touch me anymore. Like, are you required then to v- validate my marriage? Almost the entire evangelical church today would say yes, even if they don't say yes. Almost the entire evangelical church would say because there's forgiveness in Christ and because he has an Ontario marriage license, that's a legitimate relationship. I'm just posing the question, is it? Maybe it is, but is it? Yes, my wife, my lovely wife, my beautiful wife. It's just a very theoretical. This is supposed to be a very impersonal kind of... I shouldn't have used myself as an example. Okay, let's say... um, I'm going to pick some other guy. No. (laughs) I mean, there's tons of people in our church, I'm sure, that have this. Well, I want to know yours. <laughs> okay, well, it's not even about whether you're going to go to the wedding or not. It's it's more about it's more about like after the fact. And this isn't oftentimes we we use the old well they weren't Christians now they are but what about Christian Christians they were Christians before they're Christians when they're committing the adulteries and they're Christians after. Is is that a legitimate relationship? There, some pastor out there will marry them hands down. There's somebody out there that'll do it for a couple hundred bucks. But is it legitimate? Like, is it under the blood now? Yeah. I know someone, and to this day, they're still married, and to this day, I just get this taking trouble feeling, and I hate it, and I don't feel like it's a proper marriage or anything. I don't know what the Bible exactly says about it, but personally, in my heart of hearts and in my head, I'm like, it's wrong and it's not happening. Okay. Here's the thing, by the way, don't kid yourself. If someone has an adulterous relationship, runs off, shacks up with such and such, 
and then has the license and the church says, okay, there, there is a, a dimension in every human being that would say, okay, it actually is okay because you've told me it's okay. And, and we often extend what we call grace, but the question would be, are we doing people a, dis, uh, a true service? Is that actually the kind of grace? Grace doesn't even make any sense, by the way, until there's repentance. It's like, it's, it's empty. So we, we wrestle with this as pastors, as church folk. Um, is every marriage legitimate because it's been sol- solemnized by someone with an Ontario marriage license? Is it? Like, uh, just if, if you could try to get into the head of God based upon God's revelation of himself in Scripture, does God look down and say, okay, you, you asked for forgiveness for your adultery, you married her anyway, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to consider that a genuine covenant. Or, or is it possible, are there any situations in the Bible you can think of where God recommends divorce? Are there any situations where God recommends divorce? Hundreds. God said to the Jewish men after they were coming out of the exile, I want you to divorce your wives, put away your children, and walk away from those marriages. Hundreds of them. And you're like, how does he even see? There's kids. Like, how does it even seem right? But God actually. And for the, his holy nation, recommends divorce for men who had entered into marriages that he did not think were valid. Now, the situation was not necessarily adulterous. It was idolatrous. And God says, those are not valid. I told you not to. You did it anyway. Stop it. And as part of stopping it, put your wives away from you. And... Whenever I've read those texts, there's always this kind of gnawing, like, I don't, are you sure about that, God? Like, I don't know. What about the kids? <laughs> Why not kind of retool the relationship somehow? But that question, that, those, those texts haunt me when, um, I mean, I have a, a friend who's a pastor who, um, who was a pastor who divorced his wife ran off with a woman in the church, eventually married her, and people said he sort of got what he wanted, um, You know, worked in secular industry and went right back into ministry. And I don't think anybody really raised an eyebrow because all he had is marriage license and he asked for forgiveness. And and maybe that should be the response, but it's it's a question to think about. Is that is that the right response? Um, I mean, there's many people that remarry for other reasons uh, because they were abandoned or their spouse ran off on them. But I'm talking about the perpetrator here. Yeah, Brian? Yeah. And then Jesus kind of taught, he was that almost like a radical approach that no one likes is adultery. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no reason for divorce. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't you say that that basically kind of is still in place somewhat that really adultery 
wouldn't you really say that adultery is really the only kind of crime that we have hmm. Well, or else you're kind of let me say this with, I need to play a little coy, right? Because I want to keep generating discussion here. And we're going to get into some, some texts here in a little bit. But um, there, 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 are no, uh, there are very few Christians that would not recognize that adultery is the big one. Okay, some would say it's the only one. Others would say it's in the top two. Most people say it's the, it's, a, it's the big one, right? The problem in the church today is even the big one's been thrown out. So there's always, there's always an op, a second opportunity. And I, I'm just wondering if this doesn't sort of come back to this whole notion that if I want it, I should get it. Like, is it, is it really life-shattering, earth-shattering to say to someone who has left their spouse, committed adultery, you know what, you, you did make a mistake, you've been forgiven, and now you're single for the rest of your life. Or is that a violation of human rights too? Um, very few people would be willing to say that. Say, well, the person might be tempted, you know, they might say it's better for them to be married than burn, which... Those are those are texts about single people. Those those aren't texts. Those are texts about the validity of celibacy versus marriage. Those aren't, those aren't like the third third time round kind of texts. But it, it Brian, the, the church, and I'm speaking generalities. I mean, there's lots of exceptions. But my gut feeling is the church today, for the most part, with lots of exceptions. Is has has chosen to take the route of maximum grace, and say, if you ask for forgiveness, we'll, we're okay with it. Well, then what do you do when the homosexual couple shows up and says, we 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 have a marriage license, we took our vows, we believe we're in a covenant, um, we, we're now born again, we realize, you know, it, it was wrong. We've asked God for forgiveness. We have three children together. Um, is that really, I mean, it's not that much of a leap to think that the church might say, well, okay, yeah, I mean, you, you've repented, you've, you've for, asked for forgiveness, so shouldn't have done it, but we're not going to ask you to divorce. These aren't pie-in-the-sky questions. These are, <laughs> churches are, uh, the line is sliding, and, and maybe the line does need to slide. In certain areas, but should it in these areas, James? I guess I'm trying to understand too. I mean, this is you know, there's this sort of where you know you, the church has to take a, a really tough stand on these these issues because mm-hmm. I think they look at it as if you allow this in the church, and, and I think a lot of it is trying to sort of set the standard really high to I mean not even curse people to divorce because then again you're talking about Should, should have in terms of qualifications or deacons. But I think the church 
We have divorced elders in our church, by the way. One, two, at least two. Yeah. Well, I would say very simply, the church's job is to act in a way that the church believes the Bible teaches. And if the Bible draws a hard line on something, we determine that's what it does. Then we draw a hard line. If the church, if the Bible leaves it as what we would call a gray area, there's a lot of ambiguity, then we leave it ambiguous. If it's a matter of conscience, we leave it as a matter of conscience. If it's a non-issue, we choose as a non-issue. So. I mean, I don't think everything needs to be ramped up to like a, a, a you know, a, a class 10 issue, but not everything is sort of just up to the individual either. And uh, I think it's okay to have several different levels. Some things, no, this is a hill we're going to die on. This is a hill we don't care about, and several things in between. Um, these kind of conversations sometimes bring to the to the front of our minds, things that are in the back of our minds we just don't think about. And uh, they're, they're really, they relate a lot to the, the application of biblical truths and principles. And um, the scenarios that I've selected are, are, they're not theoretical questions. They're real life. I mean, they may not be happening every week in our church, a church like ours, but they, we, we, we wrestle with these kinds of questions in certain cycles in the life of our church community. Yep. I've always thought, like, for, for those who just mentioned don't have a medical history of divorce, like, I've, I've always thought the way I've understood that to mean that you were called to witness to know that the, the wife of one, uh, one, a man with one wife, mm-hmm. or one woman, a man with wife, whatever. Yeah. 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 And, and in terms of of a divorce, like I just kind of think could somebody really be considered to be adulterous? Like a marriage fell apart, things didn't work. Could you really use them to kind of be adulterous from that point on after, because their marriage kind of did fall apart? Like, could you kind of can they do your marriage? Could you really be looking at them as the end of your parents if you continue mm-hmm. to live in marriage? Well, it's true that a person is no is no longer an adulterer or adulteress when they stop having sex with someone that's not their spouse, right? But the question is, does that act invalidate the possibility of a future marriage? Based upon the Matthew 18, 19 conversation about if a man divorces his wife, marries another, uh, or she marries another, causes her to become an adulteress, except in the cases of sexual immorality. I mean, clearly there, I mean, I I think if I'm reading the text right, there's a lot of things in there, but one of the things that seems to be in there is it's possible to be married and be an adulterer in the marriage because the previous marriage wasn't ended properly, for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, so then, and, and then we would have this two scenarios. So, you know, this guy divorces his wife. Of course, we're always putting it on the guy, so we'll make the girl the bad guy, the bad girl. So this girl, this terrible woman, 
divorces her loving, gracious husband. And this, (laughs) and so does this lady, right? And uh, runs off some other guy. Um, They both get married, and then one immediately repents. And the other doesn't, never really repents. So then are those two different? Do we approach those? We say, okay, this one's valid, this one isn't. So back to Josie's question, if you ask forgiveness for something, does that mean that you're free and clear? It, we know it doesn't in Canadian law. And ask forgiveness all you want, you're still doing the time or paying the fine. It's nice to ask forgiveness, the judge may be more lenient. But you broke the law, sir. We don't really care about motivations and attitudes. You're you're doing the time, and yeah, go ahead. Well, we know, yeah, repentance is, I mean, you guys probably all know this. The the word itself means to change mind, change mind. Meta, noia, mind, change mind. But the, the, just because that's what the word means, like in terms of its literal breakdown, doesn't mean that that is all the, the word means. Uh, in its contexts, it means to walk away from, to turn from. So, and there's, you can see the tie-in, like if you change your mind, it's going to affect your actions, I would think. So there's a turning away. So does that mean I turn away from the marriage or does I turn away from lustful thoughts or whatever it might be? Right? Okay, so we're going to park this one. We're going to come back to it. I want someone to comment on this. Prenups. Marilyn? It does uh, breed. It does imply a certain level of mistrust from the beginning. Oh. Maybe because the family fortune kind of thing. Okay. It it often is in situations where there's. In those kind of there's like an inequity as to what parties bring and what amount of money. But again, you know, no offense if you do this. Yeah, I'm gonna offend you anyway. Um, <laughs> but I've never felt real comfortable with couples that have separate bank accounts. I've always thought, you know, kind of bring it all together, like kind of work. That's kind of part of marriage. It's you work on things together, like you have a budget, you have a financial plan, you have money, certain certain bills or aspects of the finances might be managed by this person and this person. But it's kind of like, no, I get a paycheck, she has a paycheck, this is her account, I pay for the utilities, she pays for the mortgage, I pay for the gas, she pays for the insurance. I, I don't know, I just, 
I don't have a verse, but I wish I could find one. I never really liked that. Um, but again, if you do that, you know, don't, Glenn, you're not going to tell me you do that, are you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely radical unity. Now, in financial management today, uh, Hector wrote this, have separate accounts, separate bank accounts, but uh, we never have, and I think it's detrimental to marriages today. Well, you know, at the end of the day, you're, it's going to be probably a 50-50 split anyway if there's a divorce, but it's it's, it's sort of like a day-to-day thing. What does, what does that communicate? Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah. We were in our marriage already, already some really weird things there. Yeah. Is the Lord going to be mad at me to say, don't touch money? (laughs) 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 I, honestly, I will say, you don't touch my money because it's now my money. The Lord can say, don't touch my money. Yeah. It's the Lord's money. Yeah. The, Lord the pastor's going to say we have a $4 million building. <laughs> the, Lord give, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. <laughs> and I'll take money from anybody, anywhere, anytime. Okay, everybody on Sunday call him Sam Molito. Well, your will, your estate's not divided up, if I understand law. Your estate's not divided up when you die. It goes to your spouse. Your spouse does with it whatever they want. They can change the will. Someone can correct me, but I, I don't think it's... I can write whatever I want. When I die, it's my wife's money. And then she can do with it whatever she wants. Yeah, that's for divorce. Yeah, for divorce. So so if you and your husband divorced, God forbid, some people sign a document in advance that says, any money I bring in, I keep. So let's say you bring in 90% of the money, a couple million bucks or whatever. The other person brings in five bucks. Well, without the prenup, you each get a million dollars and you know two and a half bucks. But without the prenup, yeah, without one. But the prenup can put different rules and regulations on it. Okay, well, this has hopefully got us thinking because now we're going to talk about the legal status of women in ancient culture violations of marriage, mosaic law, and a whole lot of other fun stuff. But before we do that, we're going to take um, uh, a prayer and snack break. Um, So just take a few minutes to pray. We'll uh, 
distribute some prayer sheets and we'll just encourage individuals or groups or couples to spend uh, a few minutes praying and then um, when the lights are flashed we'll uh, enjoy some snacks together. Okay, um, let's come back together. I was chatting with uh, one of the guys here on break, and um, one thing that I wanted to mention, maybe, <clears throat> I, I'm guessing some of you will be aware of this and some of you won't, but just, just back to the issue of the church being, the historically the church guarded the marriage license, marriage registry, and uh, it was the church that did the marrying, at least in the Western world. Of course, in the East, it would have been a temple or a mosque or whatever. So, okay, so let's take Susie and I, for example. 20 years ago, we get married. Both grew up in churches. Uh, I was actually in pastoral ministry already, and I just I wasn't aware of this because no one had ever told me, but we went and got a marriage license and paid whatever it was, $80 for it at the time. And got married in the church. But no one told me I could, I could get a bands form, which was free. And uh, many people don't know this today as well, that I, I'm in my office, I have bands forms, which are just as valid as a marriage license. They're absolutely free. I can marry you for free. All I have to do, I can't use them for divorcees. They're, like The government does not allow me to use them on anyone who's been divorced. And you have to be a regular attender of a church or mosque or temple or place of worship. And I have to sign the back stating that you are. And then I, I, can, I, I need to publish in the bulletin or orally in a sacred service. Such and such and such and such are going to get married on a certain date. And that's all. In the old days, you used to have to say, does anybody have a problem with that? I don't even have to say that anymore. And so that really, and then and then in our church, uh, in churches we typically keep what's called a, ma- a marriage registry. And most people just think of those as like a backup in case the marriage license gets lost in the mail. But really what that is, is that's still, the band's form in the marriage registry are still a spillover from the idea that the, the parish churches in England kept the records. The government then stepped into the marriage business. And the reason why we know it's a money-making gimmick is because unlike the cost of a birth certificate, the cost of a driver's license in your particular province or whatever, every municipality can charge whatever they want for the marriage license. So I always tell couples, if you're getting married in this area, call Essex, call Amherstburg, call LaSalle, call the city, see who's got the cheapest rate. They could be anywhere from $90 to $130. So they're not even a standardized fee because they're money-making. So along this line of argument, when it comes to um, the homosexual marriage issues, I couldn't care less. It doesn't, it doesn't rock my boat that, that marriage licenses are being issued in Ontario for gays. So are driver's licenses. So are health cards. There's nothing in those licenses that is sacrosanct. I don't have to recognize them. They're not, it's not like you get an Ontario marriage license and God's like, oh, I lost that one. I guess you're married. 
They're just a piece of paper. So unless a marriage is recognized by God, it doesn't matter how many pieces of document you have, it doesn't make it a valid marriage. So the reason why I point that out, though, is because so many Christians fight the law out there. They're so worked up about what the law is doing, but they don't sort of step back and ask the question, Dennis, you actually asked a really good question. What is marriage? What really is it? And it, folks, it has nothing to do with vows. It has nothing to do with vows. That's, an, that's another thing that drives me nuts in the church. You broke your vows. It's not about your vows. It's about a covenant. You don't have to take vows to be married. Lots of cultures, they don't do vows. They do hand-tying ceremonies. You just show up. The guy says stuff. You're married. It's not vows. But we've heard so many vows at so many weddings, we think, well, that's what makes the marriage. You know, marriages do not require vows. Who did Adam and Eve stand before? Who was their witness one and two? Where was their marriage license? Like, were they actually fornicating in the, in the garden? No, they, they were recognized by God as having a covenant. I mean, for centuries, that's the way it worked. There was a, a recognition that a couple was in a covenant relationship. That's what made the marriage a marriage. Not whether you took vows, whether you had a white dress on, whether you had a witness, whether your best man showed up on time, whether there was a wedding cake, whether there was confetti. These are all trappings. But again, if we don't think about these issues, we fall into this trap of considering marriage. But all the trappings, the license, the, the limo, uh, no, it's, it's, it, it is a covenant recognized by God. That's what makes it a marriage. And if that is not there, it's not a marriage. You can call it whatever you want. It's not a marriage. So this is just kind of like back to basics in terms of our theology. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously a symptom of the way society's going when they issue marriage licenses to anybody who asks for one. And in that sense, it's sad. It's, it's a symptom, but they're just giving out pieces of paper. Oh, well. Give them out. It doesn't change my theology. It doesn't change my view of marriage. It's irrelevant to it. So let's, let's fight the fights that are actually worth fighting. And the fights that are worth fighting are questions like, what is marriage? Um, someone else was just asking me, our, like our church doesn't ban people from positions of leadership who are divorced. We, we have uh, a policy on our website that relates to uh, divorce and remarriage under our policy section. It's very generous, if anything. It doesn't address every little issue. But um, uh, certainly there's, you know, if, if, we, have, if we have erred, uh, we, I, I would suggest that we almost always err on the side of grace. But at the same time, we have not, necessarily always done a good job in answering all the questions that are being posed to us from society. And maybe we need to do a little bit better job of that. So let's talk then about some background issues related to marriage. Uh, we'll share some stuff about the legal status of women. And these are articles adapted from Nelson's Illustrated Manners and Customs of the Bible. Uh, they kind of give us some background information here. So the, I'll just kind of go through some of this, do a little lecturing for a bit. Um, so the, le the legal position of a woman in Israel was weaker than that of a man. 
which most of you have probably picked up on reading the scriptures. For example, a husband could divorce his wife if he found some uncleanness in her, to quote the text. But no comment is made as to whether the wife was allowed to divorce her husband. So you could look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. The law stated that a wife who was suspected of having sexual relations with another man must be put to a jealousy test. And the requirements are sort of for the process is spelled out in Numbers 5, 11 to 31. But interestingly, there's no test for a man suspected to be, out, to be found unfaithful with another woman. The law also said that a man could make a religious vow that was binding on him, but a vow made by a woman could be forbidden by her father if she were married or if she were married by her husband. That's Numbers chapter 30. Uh, a woman's father could sell her, uh, Exodus 21.7, and she could not be freed and she could uh, could not be freed after six years as a man could in Leviticus 25.40. In at least one instance, a man offered his daughter to be used sexually by a mob in uh, Judges chapter 19, verses 22 to 25. Although God obviously does not indicate his approval of that, but it still gives us some insight into the cultural notions of, of women. Uh, some laws suggest that men and women were to be treated as equals. Uh, for example, children were to treat both parents with equal respect and reverence. I mean, this is in the Decalogue, Exodus 20:12. Honor your father and mother. Right. A son who disobeyed or cursed either parent was to be punished, Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. And a man and woman caught in the act of adultery, so they're both caught in the act, they were both to be put to death, Deuteronomy 22, 22. Uh, it's interesting to note here that when the Pharisees dragged an adulteress to Jesus and wanted to stone her, they had already broken the law themselves by letting the man get away, John 8, 3 to 31, or 3 to 11. Uh, other biblical laws offered protection for women. If a, if a man took a, a second wife, uh, she, uh, he was still bound by law to feed and clothe his first wife and to continue to have sexual relations with her, Exodus 21.10. Even the foreign woman who was taken captive as a war bride had some rights. If her husband got tired of her, he, she had to be set free. Deuteronomy 21.14 A man felt guilty, uh, found guilty of the crime of rape was to be stoned to death according to Deuteronomy 22. Now usually uh, only men owned property, but when parents had no sons, their daughters could receive the inheritance. They had to marry within the clan to retain the inheritance. That's Numbers 27 and Numbers 36. And the purpose of this was to retain the man's name in the tribal line. Uh, because Israel was a male-dominated society, women's rights, as we now know them today, uh, were sometimes overlooked. Uh, Jesus told of a widow who had to pester a judge who would not take time to listen to her side of the case. And because he didn't want her to keep bothering him, the judge finally agreed to her wishes in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. As with many of Jesus' stories, this was something that could really have happened um, and perhaps did. I mean, he, he, he tells the story, but it's, it's 
probably grounded in some cultural reality or something that he perhaps had witnessed. In spite of this, widows were given special privileges too. For example, they were allowed to glean the fields after the harvest for free, Deuteronomy 24, and to share a portion of the third year tithe with the Levite, Deuteronomy 26. And so in spite of their weaker legal status, women did enjoy some special rights in Jewish society. And I'll just make a comment, a sidebar comment. Many scholars, when they look at the laws that are in place for these kinds of issues in ancient Near Eastern Israel, have noticed that they are yeah, way behind modern notions, but they're way ahead of the nations around them. So if you read Ammonite literature, Moabite literature in Babylon, these are like an advanced, these are advanced, more liberal laws compared to the laws of other ancient Near Eastern peoples on matters of slavery and uh, care of the widow and orphan and whatnot. So some have suggested that there's what's what's been called redemptive movement in scripture, that from comparing ancient Near Eastern cultures to Hebrew culture to New Testament culture, none of them are necessarily presenting the ultimate heavenly, like millennial ideals but they're moving society and people toward that, which is an interesting observation. So we'll move on then to talk about some violations of marriage, again, from the same sources. Um, Although God ordained marriage as a holy relationship between one man and one woman, it soon was corrupted when some men took two wives. So we mentioned him on Sunday, Lamech, lame Lamech, in Genesis 4. Uh, someone asked the question about polygamy last week and again this week. While polygamy was never carte blanche condemned, uh, it's, it is uh, almost always tied to destructive circumstances. And intermarriage with foreign people and the adoption of pagan ways compounded the problem. The biggest example of that, of course, was our good old friend Solomon, right? So scripture then uh, records that Abraham followed the heathen custom of begetting a child to be his heir by a slave girl because his wife was barren. This was like a a notion he brought with him from the Fertile Crescent, from Mesopotamia. So just because he's doing it doesn't mean like God's giving him a check mark, a little gold star. He's He's functioning, some of the biblical characters are functioning out of their culture not necessarily out of a biblical mindset. And just because the the writer who's recording those events doesn't comment positively or negatively on that doesn't mean that it's it's condoned. Because the writers are writing for uh, maybe for other purposes. So they're not sort of going off on bunny trails and sort of justifying everything we see. Just like, let's be honest, okay, let's be honest, there's a lot of cultural notions or cultural ideas that are in the church today that we just maybe haven't thought through that aren't necessarily biblical and we may not even have time in our lifetime to think through them all and condemn them or condone them. So if if, if the Genesis record was a record of Southwood Community Church and it was talking about the life and times of our church and we're getting this background information on the people and the processes, there may be things in there that 
we're participating in or we're doing or customs or cultural things that are being recorded that aren't necessarily being condoned or condemned, but they're not necessarily strictly biblical either. Okay, we just need to understand that. I mean, we're not. I, I mean, I hate to say it, but we're not we're not exactly purists in the way we do church. Okay, I mean, there's there's a lot of culture here, a lot of North American culture that comes in to the way we do things, for the good or bad or for neutral. So listen to this. Sarah asked her husband. It may be that I obtained children by her in Genesis 16:2. The slave girl, Hagar, soon bore a son for Abraham. Later, Sarah gave birth to a son also. Hagar's arrogance vexed Sarah and caused her to treat Hagar harshly. When, when Sarah observed Ishmael making fun of her own son, she decided she had endured enough. She demanded that Abraham send Hagar away, and because Hagar had borne him a son, Abraham could not sell her as a slave. So he gives Hagar her freedom, just like the Levitical laws would later mandate. And he sends her away with a gift, Genesis 21 to 25. So I mean, that's kind of an instance of polygamy that didn't work out very well. Because there was an imbalance of power. In One was a concubine. One had the full status of wife. But there was a problem there. Uh, Jacob was another Hebrew patriarch who followed pagan marriage customs. Uh, Jacob took two wives because his uncle had tricked him into marrying the wrong woman, Genesis 29. When Rachel realized she was barren, she gave Jacob her maid, and she also uses the phrase, that I may also have children through, through the woman, through the slave girl. This is Genesis 30. So Leah became jealous and gives Jacob her own servant to bear more children in her name, Genesis 30. So it's kind of a ridiculous scene. Oh, oh, oh you can have my girl then too. We've got to one-up the sister. It's very strange, but people do strange things. Thus, Jacob had two wives and two concubines, but he gave equal status to all his children as heirs of the covenant in Genesis 48 and 49, 46 and 49. Uh, beginning with David, the kings of Israel indulged themselves with the luxury of many wives and concubines, even though God had specifically commanded them not to do this in Deuteronomy 17, 17. Now, why did they do this? this? This was drawn from the culture around them. This gave them social status and enabled them to make various political alliances. Most of Solomon's wives were foreign. So we have 2 Samuel 3, 2 Samuel 5, chapter 12, 1 Kings 3, 1 Kings 11. These are several examples of Political alliances being forged through the giving and taking of wives. Cultures have done this for, I mean, this is the European monarchs. They forged alliances just a few centuries back by intermarrying, right? David fell into adultery with Bathsheba and eventually committed murder in order to marry her. Uh, death was the customary punishment for this sin, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 22. But instead of taking David's life, God decreed that the child would die. The child, in a sense, becomes the atonement for David's sin. So it's, it might not normally think about this, but the child functions as the lamb in Leviticus, as Christ on the cross in the New Testament. A life is demanded for the crime, and it's the child that's taken as a result. 
So I think that the, the death of the child is more than just a punishment. There's, a, there's an aspect of atonement in that as well. And that strife should rise up against David and his own household. So in 2 Samuel 12, there's, uh, there is this sense of consequence uh, to, to his actions. So let's look at the Mosaic Law then. The Mosaic Law, which is the law written by um, Moses, of course, allowed a man to divorce his wife when she found no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her, Deuteronomy 24. The primary thrust of this piece of legislation was to prevent him from taking her again after she had married another man. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 24.4 that this would have brought an abomination before the Lord or an abomination upon the land, depending on what text you're reading. So you get married, you divorce, she marries your neighbor, she divorces him, you're like, hey, why don't we get back together? God's like, no way, Jose. That's for you folks. Um, no way, Jose. So, it's being culturally sensitive. So, um, he says, no way, Jose, you can't do that. That's not allowed. You cannot remarry someone that you previously divorced. That would bring an abomination of a lamb. And that divorcing brings marriage down, but then allowing that person to remarry and then get back together. And I've known people that have done this, right? But in, in the Old Testament, that, no way. The law was supposed to deter divorce rather than encourage it. It required a writing of, of divorce certificate, a public document granting the woman the right to remarry without civil or religious sanction. So um, maybe the Jill's co- comment here earlier, again, we're dealing with a different time, but in, in scripture, I would argue that intrinsically divorce, a legitimate divorce was uh, a green light to remarry, a legitimate divorce, because it was the writing of the divorce certificate that uh, gave a person the opportunity to remarry without civil or religious sanction. A divorce could not be done privately. You couldn't just work it up between the two of you. There had to be a public, there had to be public input under the Mosaic Law. Which is actually interesting because even today they require witnesses to the marriage covenant, um, even before the justice of the peace. Um, when I go get my driver's license, I don't need to bring two people there to testify that I'm a good driver you know, or to just stand there and say we were there. Um, but in marriage, is, is there's this unique notion from this ancient notion that there's a there's a public dimension to it. There's some recognition of it publicly. The acceptable reason for granting divorce was some uncleanness. Specific types of uncleanliness had their own penalties. Adultery carried death uh, by the penalty of stoning. If a man man believed his wife was not a virgin when he married her, he could take her to the elders of the city. If they judged her guilty, the punishment was death. Deuteronomy 22. If the man falsely accused his wife, he would be chastised and required to pay your father twice the usual bride price. So if you're a liar, it's going to come back to haunt you. When the husband suspected his wife of adultery, he took her to the priest who gave her the jealousy test. This was a trial by ordeal typical of ancient Near Eastern cultures. The woman was made, made to drink a bitter drink. Bitter, uh, drink. 
If she were innocent, the water wouldn't affect her. If she were guilty, she'd become ill. In this case, she was stoned to death as an adulteress, Numbers 5. So she had to drink Starbucks coffee, basically. No. Uh, although the law of Moses allowed a woman to, a man to divorce his wife, the wife was not allowed to divorce. The wife was not allowed to divorce her husband for any reason at all. Many women probably fled from unpleasant circumstances without a bill of divorcement, like Judges 19:2. Legally, the wife was bound to her husband as long as they both lived or until he divorced her. And if the woman was given a certificate of divorce, she was able to remarry any man except for a priest. That's Leviticus 21 and Ezekiel 44. Uh, however, remarriage defiled her in respect to her first husband. He could not marry her again uh, because she had, in effect, committed adultery against uh, him. Matthew 5. Despite the provisions allowing divorce, God did not approve of it. He hates it. He calls it violence or dealing with treachery in uh, Malachi 2. So we all know that one. You know, God hates divorce. Now, well, evidently it was a cultural notion that God used, we would assume, somehow divinely oversaw because the Mosaic priesthood is putting it into effect. And uh, so there's a miracle in it, in a sense. It sounds really bizarre. Right? It is bizarre. I mean, a lot of the laws are bizarre. Um, and the further we get, the further we are removed from that culture, the more bizarre they seem. But it is a strange... Uh, other cultures have done that too. But it, it's one of those, you know... Yeah, yeah. So what, what we, we must understand then is while it is bizarre, um, God oversaw it to ensure that it was effective. And if the you know abdomen swelled and you die, you're guilty. It's like uh, in the Middle Ages they dunk you in the river, and if you survived, you know you're innocent. And if you didn't, you're dead. So, was that one of the reasons for the betrothal period? I think I heard that. Well, the betrothal period was a year, and that was to make sure there was, in part, I mean, it wasn't the only, it was also a preparation period, but it was, you were actually legally what we'd call married, but you couldn't consummate. So if you, when Joseph was betrothed to Mary, he hadn't consummated because they were in that one year, but he thought to put her away, right? Uh, but it would have required a certificate of divorce. So that was kind of a testing period. Um, here's an example of just speaking of this law here where the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the priest couldn't marry... Um, or sorry, a priest couldn't marry a divorcee. Hosea is a prophet of the Lord, and God asks him to marry. I mean, there's, there's debate as to uh, whether the, this woman was known to be an adulteress coming into it, or God sort of tipped him off that she would be. 
a divorcee or a, an adult, an adulterous woman. Um, you know, I've studied both angles, and it's kind of hard to determine one, really favor one view over the other. But he, the shocking thing about this is that God divinely says, uh, in verse two, "Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom." And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went to Gomer, the daughter of uh, Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Okay, and there's two other children that come about. Each of them has a name tied. One's scattered, one's not loved, one's not my people, if you translate them out. And uh, so whether she's actually a whore already, a, like an ex-prostitute, or she was married or being, or she would be that again, there's debate. But this is like an exception to the rule because they become together this dramatic uh, portrait of the nature of God's relationship with his people and how God pursues the spiritual adulterer. And all the garbage that they go through, and he has to go, this Jewish man of elevated stature and uh, you know, spiritual posture has to go to the auction, and here's his wife, who's run all over the place on him, and she's they would sell you naked, so that's embarrassing too, and he'd have to kind of put up his hand and look like a fool and buy her back. Like actually pay for his wife. Um, fifteen shekels and a homer and a lethic of barley, which is worth another fifteen shekels, which is the price that Christ was um, betrayed for. So the slave price was the same thirty years, thirty-seven centuries before Christ, and he pays that amount partly in money, partly in grain, and buys his wife back. And that becomes a dramatic portrayal of the gospel in Hosea chapter 3, right? So Hosea chapter 3, which is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible because it's basically like John 3 rewritten, if you understand it. Uh, the Lord says, go love a woman who is loved by another man. She's an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Those were associated with various uh, pagan festivals and rites. So I brought, bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell for me for many days. You must not play the whore or belong to another man. So I will also be with you. For the children of Israel will dwell with, dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. So the sacrificial system would collapse. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek their Lord and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Right. So this is this is like, like this is the gospel, like God pursuing the. Uh, uh, so I'm just mentioning that as sort of as a little side note that while we're dealing with adultery texts and whatnot, that spiritually we're, we are all adulterers and God in his grace, grace sends his son to sort of play the role of the fool and be publicly humiliated to purchase us back for the price of a slave, right? Which is really fascinating. Uh, 
you know, just some thoughts as we as we think about the sanctity of marriage and we sort of demonstrate, as my wife has well done and rightly demonstrated tonight, that, that revulsion that we should all um, feel and have when it when we think of marriage covenants being violated. Um, you know, we must also bring to mind the fact that we have committed spiritual adultery against God time and time again. And, you know, God in his love is the, the loving husband wooing us back into relationship, playing the role of the fool, you know, paying for our sins um, when he was not required to do so. You know, it's, um, it strikes me that if we don't elevate marriage and have a high view of the sanctity of marriage, that it distracts us from really fully appreciating the gospel too. Because the analogy of marriage becomes an analogy of the gospel, you know, in the work of Christ and in Hosea. So that's another, I think, motivating reason for us to want to, um, you know, work hard at having uh, a true biblical view of marriage and uh, a godly view of marriage and guard guard the sanctity of marriage. Back to a comment Josie made earlier, if the devil, the devil ruins marriage, he ruins the gospel, in fact, you know. So um, that's just something for us to think about as well. Um, okay, we'll just stop there. Next week, we're going to get into Jesus' teachings and... Um, <clears throat> And then we'll talk about Paul's teachings, and then we'll try to summarize uh, the, some of the divorce texts, and then we'll maybe come back and be able to answer some of these with greater clarity, okay? So enjoy the rest of your night.